I think it's just because I was always into sports and sneakers growing up that I thought, how do I get my foot in the door? I know there are so many programs now, but they did not exist back in the day. Yeah. I studied liberal arts in film and communications. The idea of that translating, I think, to sportswear, <laughs> people are a little bit baffled. <laughs> I had zero connections at any of the companies, which I think everyone always says, oh, you must have known somebody. I knew zero people. Really? I applied to every job I could find from Keds to New Balance to Converse um, to Puma just to try to get into the to, to the sportswear world. Mm-hmm. I actually started as a customer service rep taking phone orders at wow. Converse. How long was it between the point where you started putting in applications trying to find opportunity before the customer service opportunity came it took up? Over, it took six months. This is Claim of Stories, a show about professionals working in the sportswear industry and the incredible careers they've been able to claim. Welcome to the Creative State. I'm Bima, and on today's show, I sit down with Katie Lau to explore how she went from being picked on during a game of hide-and-seek for quote-unquote wearing a pair of sneakers that weren't for girls, to working with Tom Brady and Concepts in Boston to create a very special sneaker celebrating the Patriots' amazing 25-point comeback in Super Bowl 51. Currently, Katie is the director of sports-style footwear at Under Armour in Portland, Oregon. Inspired by a sales presentation given by Yeezy GM John Wexler when he worked as a product line manager at Converse, she pursued a career in the sportswear industry as well. Along her career journey, she's worked in product at Converse on music and art collaborations, as well as at Puma on the very first Ronnie Fag project for the brand. Although Katie grew up in Law, Massachusetts, close to a lot of sportswear brands, she didn't actually know anyone that worked in the industry that could help her get her foot in the door. In fact, for about 11 months after finishing college, she was working in customer service taking phone orders. In our conversation ahead, Katie talks about growing up in the same city as where the movie The Fighter was filmed, starring Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale. I would ask if anybody's seen the movie The Fighter. Uh, Lowell is famous for two things, High on Crack Street and The Fighter. Um, Born and raised, Lowell, Mass, 01851, went to Lowell High. My parents still live there to this day. Uh, My sister recently moved out to Portland from the East Coast as well, so we're trying to get a little bit of the Lao family back out here in Oregon. Um, My aunt and my godchild still live in Lowell, too. Yeah. Yeah goodness so uh, i guess was the fighter like a, a big like deal was it like because it was um it was mickey ward right and then it was um it was dickie eklund like was that a big part of the community there well i'll tell you a little bit about that my aunt susan lives very close to the whipple the mm-hmm. bar that is in the movie and while they were filming it she would text me constantly i don't know why they're filming this movie there are always these lights in the middle of the night once the movie came out Oh, there's a little like fighter poster on her refrigerator. So now she is the number one supporter of the movie. Um, it was a big deal in Lowell, I think, just yeah. for people to get that authentic story of mm-hmm. the culture of Lowell as well as the West End gym and just that sports um, sense that you got from the movie. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then, um, so what did your parents do in Lowell for work? Like, what, what were their occupations? My mom was a secretary. Uh, my dad worked in IT, so completely different from what I do. Yeah. I loved going to work with them, just usually going into the supply closet, grabbing notepads and pens, and just like doodling along while they were at work. Those mm. days that you could bring your daughter or son to work, but <laughs> never thought I would do anything close to what they were doing. Yeah, it was just more like, this is this is what my parents did for work. and. 
Well, as much of the, my dad had to do dry cleaning, that was not what I wanted to do mm-hmm. because he was wearing like a suit, a trench coat. I think that outfit was, and that fit was just not for me. Yeah. And my mom as a secretary was always in like nylons, you know, back in the day, buffet kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to wear sneakers. Yeah. From the day I had the opportunity to wear sneakers, I wanted <laughs> to wear sneakers, men's sneakers, boys' sneakers, women's sneakers, just all that. Yeah. And so what were you, what were you into growing up out there? Like, I mean, obviously it's a pretty big sports culture. So maybe some of that, some of those influences. A little bit. We played a lot of Relievio in our neighborhood. That's how I started to get into sports. Hide and seek or something like that? It is. It sounds like JV level, but it was hardcore in our neighborhood. We took it really, really seriously. It was like manhunt or just like group um, hide and go seek. I think that started me just running around the neighborhood. It was all about trying to be faster than the boys in the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. just trying to be as good at that game as I could. That led me to playing field hockey at Lowell High. Mm -hmm. I ended up playing rugby in college, though I was terrible. It was always about (laughs) just learning about a new sport, trying to improve just physical fitness as well as being in the community and like building a culture within the schools. Yeah. And so going back a little bit, there was a moment that when you were a kid, um, when we were having kind of that pre-interview conversation and you were saying how this really was like that connection between you and sportswear product. What what happened? Tell me a little bit about that. While I was playing Relievio, I had saved up a lot of money. At that time, I saved up some of my allowance, my birthday money, my Christmas money for a pair of little boys turf trainers. They were this really aggressive midsole, off-white upper with black and teal. I remember them to this day. I thought I was so fly when I you know, started wearing them. I was sitting on my front steps because that was the home base for Relievio. There was a boy in the neighborhood who decided he wanted to rip one of the sneakers off my feet and throw it on the ground. He said, girls shouldn't be wearing sneakers like hmm. that. And in that moment, I knew I wanted to do something about that. Like, yeah. you shouldn't look at footwear as men's, men's specific. You yeah. shouldn't look at it as women's specific. It should be inclusive. Right. And the fact that at that time, too, I had to buy boy sneakers in order to get this cool colorway. Hmm. It stuck with me and the way I felt both mad and frustrated turned into something positive for me. Um, If I ever saw him, I'd wonder what he would say about it. I haven't seen him since I was probably 10 or 11 years old. Hmm. And do you think it was, I don't know, was that something that probably just came from the culture and the family which you grew up in? It was just like kind of just the thing at the time, just thinking like such the distinctions between boys and girls and men and women? I think my parents were always people who pushed me to do things that were different. My dad... Um, both of his parents were born and raised in China. Mm. He moved over to New York. He met my mom. My mom's grandmother worked in a mill in Lowell, Mass. So they had this kind of like, I'd say hustle aspect mm-hmm. of them and work aspect that I take to everything I do to this day. And while it's a different industry, I'll say they embraced me wanting to do something different. They were also embraced the fact that I wanted to get into sports inclusive of rugby that mm-hmm. I think at the time people were like, why would your daughter play rugby? Why would your daughter box? Because I boxed at the West End Gym for a while too. They were always, she can do what she wants. We'll push her to let her or just give her the opportunity to do that too. Yeah. yeah. And so in high school, you were saying how you, you got into playing field hockey. What was the inspiration there? I ran track as well, but I wasn't that good at it. Like you had people at Lowell High who went on to just do great things in in track and field. I looked to field hockey as an opportunity to just learn another sport. Hmm. Um, It also embraced like a culture of the girls that were on the team, trying to be competitive, trying to be fit. So I really enjoyed that. I didn't play it in college. I moved on to rugby to just find something else. Yeah. 
And so what was it, 2000, 2000, when you went to University of Mass and you ended up going, uh, playing rugby there, as you mentioned, was that on an athletic scholarship or what, what was that? Nope, non-athletic scholarship. Um, in Massachusetts, there was MCAS testing. So through high school, if you received a certain score on the test, you could go to any state school for free. Oh. So that I ended up going to UMass Amherst and taking some classes there, as well as UMass Lowell to just be able to diversify. Um, I played rugby just for the idea of physical fitness and sport. If anyone does anything, I highly recommend the 30 for 30 about rugby, where you get to see the culture of what rugby did just for um, New Zealand and as well as what it's been able to do outside of just the sports world. It's more inclusive of how do you push a sport and to have positive impact in the culture. Hmm. Okay, we'll definitely have to take a look at that. And so... When you were considering, I guess, you're, you're in school, you're going through your major, and you're considering, what am I going to do you know, for a career, obviously? Um, what are you thinking about at that time? You're on the East Coast, you're in New England, you're, sur- you're surrounded by a lot of cool companies. What are you interested in? I think it's just because I was always into sports and sneakers growing up that I thought, how do I get my foot in the door? I know there are so many programs now, but they did not exist back in the day. Yeah. I studied liberal arts in film and communications. The idea of that translating, I think, to sports where people are a little bit baffled. <laughs> I had zero connections at any of the companies, which I think everyone always says, oh, you must have known somebody. I knew zero people. Really? I applied to every job I could find from Keds to New Balance to Converse um, to Puma just to try to get into the the sportswear world. Mm -hmm. I actually started as a customer service rep taking phone orders at Converse. How long was it between the point where you started putting in applications trying to find opportunity before the customer service opportunity came it took over, it took six months wow. I was working for the Red Sox as mm-hmm. well as the Lowell Spinners their minor league team so I I continued to work I also worked at Whole Foods I was just hustling to pay bills yeah. pay off um, some of my student loans because I still had to pay for a dorming mm-hmm. while I was in that MCAS scholarship um, but at that time I was like I just need to get my foot in the door I need to get my foot in the door what is it going to take there were frustrations of course because yeah. every job required experience but in order to get experience, you need to get a job. Right. <laughs> um, so it was kind of that catch-22 that I think a lot of people go through, even now. Um, and people who have been in programs have more experience than I ever did. Mm-hmm. And I always recommend, if you love a company, yeah. take a job. Take a job. Get your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Meet people. You'll also learn a lot from it that you can bring to the next step in your career. Yeah. And so when you're, you're the opportunity, the best opportunity in front of you is the customer service role. What are you thinking? Are you like readily wanting to step into that or is there hesitation? Are you running that by friends and family? What's going on? I actually was excited about it because I was getting my foot in the door. I was going to be able to wear jeans, sneakers. I was going to learn about the product much more than I had. You can see everything you want on Hypebeast. You can go on Sneaker Freaker. You can go on the internet. But behind you know, mm-hmm. behind the curtain, there's a lot that goes on. Every single product that people wear has had hundreds of people that have influenced it from costing, merchandising, planning, um, PLMs, design yeah. development. There's just so much for you to have a holistic perspective in everything you do. Customer service still helped me because I was doing Excel spreadsheets. I was running reports. Um, I think people think PLMs don't know their numbers. <laughs> they usually have a planner. Knowing your numbers really does help you in the PLM field, especially if you're trying to drive a new vision. Mm-hmm, um, business and exactly, model. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And so this was, so the customer service role was at Converse. Mm-hmm. And um, what did you think? Like this was your first time being behind those walls from a professional sense, um, meeting people behind the brand. Like 
what what were you what were you thinking? What were you going through there? I had a business card that said Converse. I was happy about <laughs> I was happy about that. Um, I got a paycheck yeah. every other week. I could go into the same building that you had PLMs going into, designers, developers. I was learning from them. I was learning from some of the sales reps that would call mm-hmm. and say, hey, we have a broken size, Ron. This is how it affects my business because I would just start asking questions. Mm-hmm. I'd say, okay, this affects this West Coast account. Why does it affect them? Mm-hmm. Someone would call about cheer shoes. Also highly recommend cheer on Netflix. Yeah. Shout out to Jerry if anyone's watched that. <laughs> um, it's a great show. It just gave me a different perspective once I became a PLM to think, okay, there's an end product here. Sales reps are going to have issues like this that I experienced in customer service. Had I not learned that, mm. I'd have a little bit more of a narrow perspective that I to bring to my day-to-day. Totally. And so today you've been, a bulk of your experience has been as a PLM, a product line manager in footwear, apparel as well. Um, but initially that inspiration came while you were at Converse and um, I read that you were actually sitting in on a presentation given by a sportswear legend, John Wexler, and he was giving insight as far as uh, the inspiration behind a product he was bringing to life at a sales meeting. And you were there. Yep. I'll give a shout out to Converse because they let customer service reps go to a sales meeting. So we were able to sit in every single presentation, whether it was from John or other teammates, seeing him present the passion that he brought to the line he was managing I immediately knew I was like, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. While it will take me many, many years to get to the level he's at, or even we're in different paths now, just seeing him present with such passion and the storytelling, I was like, oh, this all goes into that product that you're wearing on your foot or the shirt that you're wearing. I knew immediately this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. The next day <laughs> at work, I thought, what do I have to lose? I sent him what felt like a 20-page email about his presentation, how much it excited me, giving him all these feedback points. I love this. Have you thought about this? I love this. Then I'm sitting there thinking, am I going to get in trouble? (laughs) (laughs) There's a random customer service rep reaching out to to John at customer service about a presentation. A couple hours later, my phone rings, and I can see that it's him calling. I'm thinking, John calls you. I just sent the email a couple hours later. The phone's ringing. You can see the name. He said, you should come down to the third floor or the second floor. I forget where the product team sat. And he's like, let's just have a conversation. Hmm. I went to my manager. I'm like, hey, is it okay if I go down to the third floor? She's like, sure. Thankfully, she was supportive. And when I sat down, he just said, it sounds like this is something you should do. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend you apply for some APLM positions. There were no APLM positions Positions. open at that time, but at least sparked my idea that that was the next step because I had no idea what a PLM did. Mm. I think a lot of people actually have no idea what a PLM does. My boyfriend probably has about a 10% (laughs) idea of what goes into it. Um, But it's a lot, and it was great that he even supported having the conversation with me, didn't take the email in a negative way, like, who's this person in customer service sending me a random email about my presentation? And the fact that my boss was like, hey, yeah, sure. Go Go ahead, go go explore. Yeah, go talk to him about it. My nervousness walking down the stairs, I'm like, (laughs) this nerdy customer service rep. I'm going to go talk to this guy who just gave the most amazing presentation. And he was so humble Mm -hmm. and just, um, I'd say, accessible. That's what I really liked about the experience talking to him. Even though it didn't lead directly to the job, it gave me the opportunity to be like, okay, this is something that I want to do. Right, right. And so by 2008, um, you do, uh, I mean, after that conversation, you do end up getting an APLM role, right? And it was at Converse. Yeah, that was also not a direct path. After Mm -hmm. a couple months, an APLM position did open up at Converse. 
And on the flip side, I was applying to other coordinator slash APLM jobs just because I knew right after that day, I was like, okay, this is the function that I want to work in. This is the field that I want to work in. Reebok actually offered me a position as a coordinator Mm -hmm. while I was going through the interview process for the APLM job at Converse. Did you consider it? I did because I wanted to get my foot in the door and get into product. I actually declined the Reebok job, and that's not a knock to Reebok. They do great things. It was just that something in my heart said, stay on the path at Converse. This is what you want to do. Mm -hmm. So I turned it down, and it took about six more weeks till I was offered the Converse job. Those six weeks be a lot of anxiety. felt like 60 years to me mm-hmm. because every day I kept thinking, did I just turn down that job and I'm not going to get this one and I'm going to be in customer service taking orders, which was fine, but I thought I might have made the wrong decision. But yeah. then I said, no regrets. This is what my heart told me to do. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, it just worked out for the best that I got the you position. Got the position. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so then it was 2008, you're going through Converse and... You're actually working on collaborations, right? Yep. Right? And so before we go into the collaboration part, can you break down a little bit more, like, what is the role of a footwear PLM? Like, what are you what are you looking after for the business and how are you supporting the rest of the team? I think I always think of the PLM as the hub of the business. You could do everything from briefing product. You could be setting up samples. You can be unboxing samples. You can be on the road visiting sales reps and talking to them about product. It's different every single day, and that's why 15 years later, I love it. I have nothing but good things to say about it. You have the opportunity to learn from teammates across every single function, across the globe. It's a little bit creative. It's a little bit business. It's a little bit of everything because I always felt like, hey, there's a little bit of a creative side, but in no way, shape, or form or anywhere close to a designer. I also like to have the analytical side and how do you look at your historicals in business Mm -hmm. and apply that to your thought process. It's not that data drives your decisions. It can be an informed, exactly. Mm -hmm. You could say data told me this, but I'm not going to do that. But these are the reasons why before someone comes in and says, we're not doing that because the data told me this. You need to be informed in all of that. Right. You need to have a a lot of different influences before you can just, hey, this algorithm or something like that, this this report pulled out this information. That's the direction we should go. And that's why we always talk about the PLM. That's the the art and science part to it. Exactly. And I'll give just a little bit of insight. As we look to spring, summer 22, most PLMs will start. They'll look at the business historicals. They'll look at what's going on in the marketplace. They'll check out their NPD data, which now you can get on the internet. Mm-hmm. It's highly accessible. You'll go on your trend websites. You'll see what's going on WGSN. You'll talk to customers. You'll also try to get out just into the marketplace because things are moving much, much faster than they have ever been. Mm-hmm. There's all a, a lot of regional nuances. So reaching out to your partners in Asia Pacific, yeah. Europe, to just see what are those nuggets that you can take into building your business plan. Then you start building your line plan. Then you start building your briefs. You're partnering with designers, developers, um, many teammates just across the business to make sure. Once you set those briefs, you want them to be almost bulletproof. Mm. You want to make sure you have buy-in from your full team. Mm -hmm. You've considered costing. You've considered life cycle, how the style is going to take different materials over multiple seasons. That is the core of the work that PLMs do. Then throughout the process, a design goes through three or four rounds. So... LR1, Line Review 1, it has many names at many different brands. And over what time period is that, are those reviews happening? Like, is that happening, I don't know, in six months? Does that happen in 12 months? Is it 18? Like, Once you hand over the brief, you could have a design review, an initial design review within a month. So it could okay. be initial sketches. But it's about 18 months from briefing to when product hits shelf if it's a standard calendar. Some of our projects are fast track or collabs that could take 12 months or 
two to three years, depending mm. on the collaborator and how many rounds it takes to really dial in the product. Um, what goes into that after is there's going to be feedback that's going to come in and yeah. say, I like this brief. I like where the design's going. Here's a little bit of additional insight to consider. So it does kind of ebb and flow and go through a little bit of a, a, a path as mm -hmm. you get through the product creation process. I'd say you feel like you're successful if by the end, 80 to 90% of the vision across the full line is there because yeah. PLMs are managing anything from 100 SKUs mm -hmm. to 500 SKUs. Yes. Like the, it's everything from new colors, mm -hmm. new materials, new uppers, and totally new midsoles. And those all have their different timelines and tracks, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like a new color is going to take a lot a lot shorter because the creation of the product's already there. The totally news take the longest time because you're opening new molds, you're mm -hmm. investing a lot of money into a new design. It's really exciting in that way that you learn a lot. Like what I learned at Converse helps me to this day because mm. I was working on the Chuck Taylor. Yeah, I can't count how, how many, many. Yeah, how, how many, many uppers are on there? How many uppers have been on the Chuck? How many materials have been on there? How many colors? How many prints? How many graphics? It really taught me that many shoes can live much longer than they're in the marketplace. Mm. If you give them a new personality with color, yeah. material, or a collaboration, there are probably a few people in here that have the same shoe on, but a different take on it, right. and it can give it a totally different look. That's amazing. And so at what point did you start working on collaborations at Converse, right? Because you'd, you'd been promoted to a full-time PLM. You're working on Chuck Taylor um, across various parts of that category. Um, when did that happen? It was really cool in that the fact for the first two years of being an APLM, I thought to myself on a daily basis, when are they going to figure out that I don't belong here? <laughs> and it wasn't because anyone gave me negative feedback. Everyone was super supportive. But I thought every day I'm like, I get to make shoes? Like, yeah. this isn't real, right? And then after two years of doing that, I got promoted to be a, a PLM. And that was always in my mind, if I'm a PLM, mm. then I know I made it. Yeah. I know that like there's a path and I'm doing what I want to do. And there there is a long-term career for me. Um, luckily, the team that I had worked with, there had been no real collaborations or they weren't really investing in collabs at that time. But there was a, a man that I was working with, Jed Lewis, mm -hmm. who then just spearheaded this amazing pro like program around music, art, and fashion. Mm -hmm. And he was my manager. So we worked together on a lot of collaborations on the music side. He was the number one driver of it. Like yeah. To this day, I think he went on to Sonos. And then I don't even know where he wow. works now. but. He had this passion for music yeah. that I loved that I got to learn from him. And, and also you going to like different events and festivals and stuff like that. Got to go to Bonnaroo every year, Coachella a few times. We just wanted to be in the in the culture, but mm -hmm. also finding groups or artists or individuals that were more on the up and up verse. Yeah. Hey, everyone knows about this artist. Right. How do we find the person who's going to be the next the next? next? Exactly. Yeah. Because knowing it takes 18 months for products to come out you have to crystal ball a little bit. You have to be willing to say, I'm going to invest here. Mm -hmm. If it works out great, if it doesn't, what did we learn from there? Because every project is not going to be as successful as every other project. Mm -hmm. You're always going to be rolling the dice here and there, right? And that's the that's the art side of it because you do want to make sure as a PLM and as a product team and as a brand, you're bringing a new perspective in and you're trying to shift the narrative or drive a new one exactly. at the same time, right? And so Converse had been like your foundation. It's been an amazing place for you to cultivate your skills as a PLM. And around 2010, you're starting to think about the next thing. You know, how can you expand the knowledge that you have and do something else? What were you thinking? At the time, I couldn't think of leaving Converse. Mm. But on the flip side, 
I had spent about five years working with a Chuck Taylor. Yeah. That shoe is going to be here on this earth past the time that I am, past the time that most of us will be. <laughs> that shoe is an icon. Um, it, it's the soul of that brand. It's just a great shoe. Mm. With that being said, I'd been focused on vulcanized footwear in one style. How do you make it live on? How do you make it live on? I want to expand outside of vulcanized. I want to work on court shoes. I want to work on running shoes. So I started to just consider what's the next next because mm -hmm. you want to make sure you're learning as much as you can every single day. And that's Continue. what pushed me to just start considering what is the next step for me outside and of this. What brands were the other brands that offered some of those different categories that were on your short list? Well, I never thought I would go to Puma. Mm. Puma was a brand that I looked at as they have a beautiful archive. They have a lot of history. They can also be willing to take risks. Mm. There was a lot going on at that brand and a recruiter reached out to me mm. um, about an opportunity. And I thought, well, I haven't interviewed in five years. Yeah. Maybe this will just be a warm up for interview. How'd they find you? It's like they they somehow found me on LinkedIn. Okay. If anyone doesn't have LinkedIn, please get LinkedIn. Um, it, it's magic. LinkedIn, Instagram, random messages. I'll still reply to people on Instagram as well. Um, LinkedIn. She found me there. Sent me an email, and I thought, okay, I'll go in and see what's going on. Yeah. The three things that made me really consider it, because even at that time, I was like, I can't leave Converse. What am I? I'm used to wearing Chucks. What mm -hmm. am I going to wear at Puma? What, what's going to go on there? It was just the idea of one, I was able to work on at Puma inline projects as well as special collaborations mm -hmm. off calendar. Um, number two, looking at outside of vulcanized footwear because the opportunity was across what they considered, um, I think it was called varsity or lifestyle, but it had court shoes, run shoes, vulcanized shoes. So yeah. it was like, you know, you the, the perfect party mix is for any, anyone product. who loves snacks. <laughs> you have a little bit of everything as well as the opportunity to really work with different teammates there because there had been so many people with different perspectives who, during the interview process, a few people came in and yeah. showed me pictures of things in the archive that they were like, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And yeah. just that passion of being able to do something with archive product and outside of Vulcanize mm -hmm. was the reason that I struggled with it because I loved Converse. Right. I still and you do. Love the people there and... But it was the right choice. Yeah. It was the right choice. And I guess uh, going back to the people part, I think, you know, we work so much with our peers day in and day out. It's a critical part about what makes your day at work really good or maybe not so good. And so when you were getting some of this interaction during your interview at Puma, did it make you feel like, OK, this is something I can strongly consider because I think they have really good people here? It was the culture. The culture at Converse was great, too. The, con the culture at Puma is great. You always want to find a place where you can be you. If you're mm. going to a place where you have to change how you dress, how you talk, mm. how you feel, how you filter yourself, for me personally, that's not a place for me because then you're not being your authentic self. At Puma, it was great because you had different personalities, different backgrounds. You had some people who were really into skateboarding, other people who were into like sailing, which I have minimal exposure to sailing. You had people who were really into motorsports. The idea that the company is also headquartered in Germany. I had the experience to spend a lot of time in Germany. Mm. My last year there, I was in London. Um, wow. And you just got a little bit more of a, a diverse global perspective. Yeah. And was that your first time going to some of these places when after you joined the brand? The first time I was out of this country was actually a Converse. Okay. Once I moved into that APLM position, about a month after, they said, we're all going to London. You should be coming with us. 
I had to tell them, I don't have a passport. (laughs) (laughs) Like those things are expensive. Some people just don't have them. It wasn't something that I grew up traveling to Europe as a kid. I was in Lowell. If we went anywhere, it was to Water Country or Canopy Lake Park, which were both in Massachusetts, which was still awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, But the opportunity actually started at Converse, got my passport, got a lot of travel there. And then at Puma, it was nonstop. Mm-hmm. Germany on a quarterly basis, London for a full year, three mm-hmm. months there, coming back, back and forth. We did a lot of travel, which I, I'm always grateful to. When we come back in just a moment, we learn how Katie went from focusing on the inline footwear collection at Puma to convincing her boss to let her lean in on a program called The List, which featured limited edition sneaker collaborations. Stay with us. I'm Bima, and you're listening to Claim of Stories. Hey everyone, support for Claimant Stories comes from Portland State University's Athletic and Outdoor Industry Certificate. Interested in claiming a career at companies like Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, or Keen? They can help by providing you with hands-on experience and connections to industry insiders. Visit pdx.edu and search Athletic and Outdoor Industry Certificate. Hey, it's Bima. Welcome back to Claimant Stories. So it's 2010, and Katie is working at Puma as a product line manager with a focus on footwear. During this time, she was working on a program called The List, which featured special footwear projects that the brand would bring into the market, including a project with Ronnie Fide. The List at that time was not successful. Okay. It had mixed reviews because the challenge with it was that the team was managing both the inline, like, Um, product as well as the list. The list is basically what has evolved into Puma Select for anyone who keeps track of what's going on with that brand. It started as collabs. It was just really difficult for the team to be able to maintain both the inline business as well as the collabs because two different different calendars. If you're managing collabs, every single project could have a different calendar. Every single project is going to require your time work with your designer, your developer, and an outside partner. It's just a lot of time. Thankfully, my manager at that time, Mark McGarry, who went on to start his own brand, was really supportive of what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, if as long as all the inline stuff that I'm responsible for is covered, can I invest a little bit more time on mm-hmm. the list? And he said, sure. Yeah. Just make sure that the team has the bandwidth, make sure that everything is well thought out. Like He was really, really supportive there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm grateful for that because a few of the ideas that we started with were highly successful mm. and also led to the way that the list was treated future seasons, future years. And if you go to the Puma store in New York, there's a whole Puma Select section. Wow. And that was all based on the program that you had started. That and then a few other teammates also <laughs> yeah. contributed. And then yeah. there was a gentleman, Yassine, that came in and really spearheaded Puma Select. But mm-hmm. all of it started, everything that we do is a stepping stone from somebody else. So right. that's why we're all building upon yeah, other it's work. Like, don't take credit. Yep. It takes everybody, it takes every function to get there. But but I'd say what I learned through that process is if you have a vision for something, while it may not be a priority for the brand at the time, Mm -hmm. it can become a priority. You just have to kind of show them the way, show them a little bit of success. You'll get the support over time that you needed. And that all started with the team that was working on both inline and the list. And the list. And so some of those projects um, were working with Soulbox, right? And then also working with Undefeated out of LA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We actually had taken over the undefeated collaboration because they had signed a long-term deal with them. There were multiple drops, and when I started, I think we were able to work on the last two drops for undefeated. So we met with Eddie, we met with his team to just talk about, 
Hey, there's been a lot of undefeated Puma product. If anyone looks back in that history, how do we make the last two drops something that's really, really meaningful? So we worked with them on a gold execution of the Clyde, yeah. which sold out. It showed everyone if you focus on the story because they had done a gold execution. We also focused on the fact that there was like a Boston LA yeah. competition. So there was a Boston Celtics colorway and then an LA Lakers colorway. And it was just more about telling that authentic lens. Like Undefeated is all about sport and right. style and fashion and making sure that people remembered that versus just putting another brand's name on a product to me is not a collaboration. Right. It really needs to have that story and mm -hmm. that connection to the consumer yeah i mean that's the one thing and, and maybe that's one of the the pitfalls of doing collaborations especially today is there's such a volume of them and i think when we're talking about um, when you're working on this project that was probably like 2011 in that period where we didn't have such the cadence of collaborations out and whereas now i would say it's even more important to know what that story is and and to make sure we're anchoring it otherwise it's just very transactional it, get, it gets lost too and it, I, People say, well, consumers, if they like the shoe, if they like the product, it's no big deal. A con consumer can tell. They can tell if it has a meaningful story because they can tell if the partner is talking about it in an authentic way. If it's just the brand saying, rah, 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 we did this collaboration, you kind of get suspect. You're yeah. like, hmm, was this because you wanted to drive revenue? Yes, we're in a business setting. But collaboration should bring you to a new place, and they should also be a platform for the consumer to get something that they're excited about, not just that you're excited <laughs> to put another brand's logo on a product. Yeah. One of the projects that you worked on through the List program um, was a program with Ronnie Feig. And at the time, Ronnie's um, very much still on the rise. This is uh, 2012 is when it launched, but you obviously had to work um, on that project a little bit before to make sure you're hitting that timeline. And uh, it was on a project called The Cove on the disc uh, Blaze OG. Uh, tell me about how this was coming to life and like, why did you focus on disc? Like, was there something in the tech that the, the company was trying to push? Like, what was the brief? The, the brief went sideways, up and down, <laughs> left and right. It actually started with Adam Leventon out of the North America office. He had thought of an idea to work with Ronnie, but on a sneaker boot project. Hmm. Ronnie and I had a conversation and we were both excited about Trinomic and DISC as an opportunity. So we decided to kind of shift the project. Yeah. Um, thankfully, the developer at the time, Orlando Rodriguez, who I still work with now at Under Armour, oh, wow. and John Tang, the designer, it was like the four of us sat down and just said, what do we want to do? Yeah. Um, we wanted to make sure Ronnie was excited about it yes. because if anyone knows him, He's a perfectionist. Yeah. Like he'll teach anybody to think about the details, to think about the holistic um, story, to think about everything from packaging mm. to how do you seed product? How do you make sure there's a meaningful give back? It was the first time I'd worked with him and it was the first time that he ever did anything with Puma. Mm. Now he's done multiple drops, right. but, and at that time it was a totally different landscape. Right. Like if you go to any of the Kith stores now, your draw will drop. It's, yeah. it's, beautiful. it's beautiful. Everything that he's doing, he deserves the success that he had. But it was cool to be part of the first, the first wave well, of it. Exactly. And to have the opportunity to think of, to sit with him and hear how he thinks about the project mm -hmm. and to be able to kind of like modify the direction. We just felt like, hey, this running trend is coming. Mm. This is a beautiful midsole. Disclosures also have just this like really iconic look. 
he knew immediately like, yeah, that, this, was the- this, this is this is the <laughs> path I want to go to. And thankfully, it led to multiple projects that we got to work on together. Yeah. And so when you were having some of these meetings, were, were, were those happening in Boston or were you and the team going to New York to, to meet with him? Both. Like, both. Both. Um, I still have some pictures from the first meeting where John, the designer, has like some of the sketches. He's sitting with Ronnie. Orlando, our developer, is in there just thinking about different ways to treat the product because Ronnie's always going to push you to do the next next. He mm-hmm. wants every detail to be considered. The cool thing for me is we were able to triple path this. So we would try material A, mm-hmm. material B, and material C. So when samples would come in, people would be like, you guys are crazy. Why are you sampling so many shoes? And we're <laughs> like, trust us, this is going to be worth it. It was kind of like the show everybody the way yes. path. Yeah. Um, we had people asking why we're spending so much time on it. Mm-hmm. Why are you doing a reflective speckle mm-hmm. on your tissue paper? This box is $8. Yep. What are you doing? The cost, all these <laughs> And we just stayed confident and said, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. And it was the first list project that caused craziness within the office. What do you mean? There were people lining up overnight for it. Hmm. People who weren't as informed in what we were doing were like, what's going on with the list? How can I get a pair? Wow. Like Like within the organization? Within the organization (laughs) because... We didn't just make tons of extra shoes to give out. That's like you want people to be passionate about the product to get it, not say, oh, now that everyone's lining up, how do I get myself a pair? So it was more about the core team being able to say like, hey, you believed in this from the start. Mm -hmm. Um, Ronnie was really excited about it. I think the resale value was crazy. Um, For us, we were just wearing the product. You know, if you buy it, wear it. If you're a reseller who's just reselling, I don't want to talk to you because you're causing the culture to not be being able to even connect with the product anymore. And and that's a part that I think that's a little bit frustrating, Mm -hmm. but I'd say that whole project really set the tone for, we can do this. Mm -hmm. We can do more with this program. Um, And now there's a whole separate team that just works on that. that. I find like, um, so during that time when you were there and it probably actually set some of the the, the tone for when I ended up going to Saucony in, in 2013 to 2014, I was working on, um, uh, retro running collaborations. And I don't know if you found this too, but I found that not only did doing those collaborations help me and inform like how we think about lines in the future, but it was also this confidence within the brand that things started to change because then people were, I, I just felt like it put people in a more creative space and they were more willing to take risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I experienced that as well because if we had positioned, hey, we want to do trinomic disc on our own, <laughs> It didn't seem like it would make sense, but this led to us launching Trinomic, having the disc in many different executions. I still think there's Trinomic in the line now. So it's more of we started it there, but had an idea of how it could cascade to other projects, how we could do an interpretation for inline. So it, it was, I'd say, more of hero to halo, but also how do you make sure that the product becomes more and more accessible for consumers? Because while you want there to be this high perceived value in the collabs, you also want people to get a piece of it. It should be accessible. Like that's part of the art of footwear in that you've got wearable art. And if you want a piece of it, if you want, if you're into the story, um, it should be inclusive. Mm-hmm. And I think another one of the success, um, success barometers or, or parameters on that product was it ended up getting you in the footlocker. It did. It did. <laughs> so we had struggled at the time to get Puma into footlocker. It's a totally different time for them yeah. now. They're on the up and up. There's a lot of product there. There were great conversations. As soon as the, the Cove project launched, we had a meeting with footlocker and they said, we want disc two. We want <laughs> trinomic. 
Um, instead, we built more of a long-term plan. Let's yep. start here. Let's have things that are timed. You don't want to just do a colorway of the disc that's similar to Ronnie's and give it to Foot Locker right away because that doesn't make sense and that doesn't show respect to the collaborator. Mm -hmm. Instead, we said, let's be patient here. How do we get a couple models there so you're not just walking into Foot Locker and there's one? Right. But it did show that there can be an implication positive, even if you're starting with something that's 500 pairs or a thousand, it can lead to something else. Mm -hmm. It's just connecting those dots. So people understand like, yes, these projects can have a better influence across our line. Yeah. And, you know, dealing with a different, a, a retailer of the size of Foot Locker, it can be a little intimidating and they have these, you know, big requests and things they want to fulfill for their business. What was the thought between you and your team of how you were going to approach that conversation? Because, you know, they're going to come in and they're asked for what they want. But as, as, as you said, you have to protect your brand and your business. Um, how are you able to, you know, get your word in there and, and drive the narrative you want? It's always being prepared and also having perspective. If you're able to bring passion and perspective to any of those discussions, you can say, I have a perspective. I understand what you're trying to do with your retailer. You also need to understand what, what we're trying to do with the, the lists and the collaborations and those projects. And they were very respectful. Like it ended up being a very um, healthy relationship and healthy dialogue over that time period. You just don't want to go in and say, wait for them to mm -hmm. ask for something. Mm -hmm. We kind of had a sense of what was going to go on, but come in with a plan and tell them your perspective. So we said, in order for you to have long-term success with us at Foot Locker, if we just do a one and done and give you the disc, <laughs> that's going to be over in a couple months. Right. How do we make sure that as we have multiple projects going on the list each month or each quarter, mm -hmm. how do we make sure that that can have a positive influence on your business? So I think it was just having that perspective and telling them that you're passionate. Like, yes, we love that you love this project. We love it too. Yeah. We want you to have that same excitement um, in a different way though for your you're a retailer and for your consumer because they didn't want to pay $8 for a box either. Like that, there was a difference. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so thinking about this pro that, that project and, and where you were as a professional and going back to some of the thoughts you, you had mentioned about being at Converse and you were saying how you're like, I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm supposed to be here or they're going to find out like, yo, she shouldn't be here. What are you thinking then? Like, are you very like confident in your role and, and, and thinking about like, yeah, I have so much to contribute. It was a little bit of both. Okay. I think at that point, I had experience at Converse that I found really valuable. We've had some success at Puma. Puma still at that time, though, wasn't where it is to this day. Mm. Within the United States, it was still struggling. So I never kind of rested on my coattails or whatever yep. that saying yeah. is. I still woke up every day saying, what's the next thing? Because if you start to slow it down, someone's going to come in. Someone, someone's always there. Yeah, young ready. and hungry mm -hmm. or another brand's going to come in. Um, you want to show that same excitement to your team, too, because you're kind of setting the tone for them. Yeah. Um, when the days get long, which is it happens, when the conversations get tough, just remember that you're you're lucky to be in a field that we're in. And you're also helping create a new generation of how we look at product because mm -hmm. it's even changed now from five years ago, yeah. 10 years ago, even five months ago, just the way that technology, Internet, the way people interface it's completely different. Completely and, different. And staying on how people communicate, how people shop, how people think about what they're wearing, it's a much more of an emotional connection. Mm -hmm. Now there's more of a holistic perspective of what's the sustainability aspect, yes. what's the give back opportunity, how is this connecting to my community. Mm -hmm. um, it's cool that people are thinking about it that way because you're able to think about projects that you're working on in a different way than we thought about 
a year ago. A year ago, right? Totally. The, the consumer and the the society has moved forward, and so we have to either be in front of it or try to move with it to make sure that we're connected, right? Exactly. Uh, and so, what was this? This is you're at Puma, and you've been at the brand and been in the space now for what about nine years going on, and you're in Boston. You obviously have your community, your family, your professional network. Um, we've already established you're a lifelong learner. And so you're continuing to see how can you continue to grow. Um, and at this point, there's this conversation about Under Armour coming into um, your life. I had a conversation with myself more, um, mm. maybe out loud. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, maybe in my mind of how do I under, how do I complete? continue to expand my scope and my experience. I had spent about 10 years, nine years in the product side, and it was mostly on lifestyle product, um, both men's and women's, so I felt pretty confident in my understanding of the lifestyle space. I had a sense that I should start thinking about how do I move into performance product, just because it's a very, very, very different animal when you're thinking about um, toe-to-heel drop, the weight of the shoe, yeah. neutral cushioning, all of that. Um, someone had reached out uh, from a recruiter at uh, the Under Armour side, and I'll admit, I never thought that I was going to work at Under Armour. Yeah. I have told people there I wasn't sure about it just because it was very, very different from a brand perspective to Puma. It was right. very, very different to, to Converse. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, I kept saying to myself, how do I push myself to learn more? Is it going to be here? I've been at Puma for five years. I've been specifically on the lifestyle side. Mm -hmm. So when they offered to have a phone interview, I built this whole presentation about women's running just wow. because it was all about go back to the Relievio, mm -hmm. go back to you know women's and sports. And they wanted to fly me to Baltimore to just meet with people about the a running position. Mm -hmm. At the back of my mind, I kind of thought, well, this is going to be more apparel focused. I definitely want to stick with footwear mm -hmm. while I had worked on some apparel um, capsules with the collabs. I thought maybe I'll meet someone maybe. here. This could be a good conversation. Who knows? Mm -hmm. It's always having an open mind that it may not be a direct path. One job could change to another. You could yeah. meet someone through the interview process. And, and that's kind of what happened. I went through the interview panel and a few women that I interviewed with were like, why aren't you interviewing for footwear? Like, I didn't know. And I, and, I was, <laughs> and I was honest with them. Like, just, just be truthful. Give people your perspective. There was a woman, Jeanette, who was great to interview with. Yeah. I always tell her to this day, I'm like, you're one of the people who brought me here. And um, she said to me, why aren't you considering footwear? And I said, well, they, they didn't reach out for anything in footwear. I don't see any job opportunities. And she was like, hang on a second. She went and did something. And then I was going to meet with three people in footwear on the same day. So really? I was like, same, same day, day, just based on a conversation, they had modified the schedule and I ended up meeting with three people on the footwear side about a potential opportunity that had no label. Mm -hmm. um, they said, we'd <laughs> love to get you on the footwear side. I ended up flying back to Boston and they wanted me to come back again. Like, what was the, the span of time? Like, you turn around two weeks? A couple weeks. And when they asked me to go back, I kept thinking, well, this started with apparel. Now it's footwear. Kind of had a little bit of back and forth. Is it really worth it? And I thought... You just never know. Right. Let's go out there. I went out there, um, went through the footwear interview process, met a lot of great people, very similar to like what I experienced going through the Puma interviews. But what really, really got me was just the opportunity. Hmm. For the brand at Under Armour, footwear is much newer than apparel. Mm -hmm. um, the opportunity to work on multiple categories, 
now what I get to do, I get to work on women's training shoes or through the time that I've been there, we've worked on women's training shoes, mm-hmm. men's training shoes, yep. some special projects, some collabs, some yep. run product. The scope of the opportunity is what really, it's really just got me. way bigger and it's way different. I mean, it, and it also explains like why you would be a little hesitant because it is a vastly different um culture as far as the the type of product that you would be working on like at least you could see the connection between commerce and puma Mm -hmm. going to under armor was a very different thing for you but it it paid off and so when you got there in 2015 and until now i mean you've worked on training footwear with Lindsey vaughn you you did a footwear with the rock uh, right that's crazy you you worked with uh, misty copeland like you, you you had some really cool cool projects that started to come to life and expand your knowledge one thing i I want to ask you about was this project that you did with uh, Converse and uh, I'm sorry, Concepts and and Tom Brady, Uh, being that you're from New England and and you were uh, grew up a sports fan. Like, what did you think about this project? Were you just super excited to work on that? The exciting part about that, the guys at Concepts are amazing. I knew them from other times. That shop is great. Um, They have multiple locations now. They connect with a consumer in a different way. They're mm-hmm. all about premium storytelling. Um, they're authentic to themselves and to their brand. Tom Brady, of course, if you love the Patriots, cool. If you don't, you still don't like Tom Brady for a reason because he had a lot of success. We won't go into all the details <laughs> because if you're a Boston sports fan, you love him. If you're not, you probably don't want to ever talk about him or think about the <laughs> Patriots or the Red Sox. I get it. Um, but it was a cool idea in that we had done this 3D architect model that Leon, one of the designers, had worked on that just looked great. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been a connection made from Ari, someone that worked within the brand as a consultant, and then to Dion um, at Concepts to just say, like, how do we make this happen? Mm. Tom's heavily linked to Under Armour. Let's just make the connection. Um, to bring everything full circle, Orlando, the developer who I had worked with at Puma, yeah. was now my developer that I was working with at Under Armour, and he's from the East Coast. Yeah. So he was, I think, born in Cambridge, considers himself from Somerville. The two of us were like, we're making this we're happen. We're making this happen. <laughs> we're making this happen. We're going to figure it out. The tight time frame almost, I think, killed both of us. What was that time frame? I don't even remember how long it was, but it was a lot shorter than nine months. <laughs> wow. Which I think pe- people will blow it'll blow your mind. And yeah. in that time, we really wanted to um, think about celebrating five rings because of the championships. Mm-hmm. We worked on tissue paper with all of his stats. It was very kind of outside the process because yeah. we started to work with like a packaging company in order to facilitate the time frame. You get it there. Mm-hmm. Started to triple sample because we knew we needed to do it in one round Mm -hmm. started to think about like how do we make sure that every single detail is well thought out that was a lot of blood sweat and tears from orlando and i think if he wasn't such a boston sports fan he (laughs) might have said we just cannot make this happen so it's giving people the opportunity to work on projects that Mm -hmm. really connect with them too because you bring a different passion to it truly and i think also thinking about uh, a lot of things you're navigating with that 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 product was that it was also new tech right (laughs) because at that time 3d printed or cushioning units were pretty new definitely definitely so it was managing what are the expectations for this tech how do we veneer it in this time frame to tell this story Mm -hmm. in conjunction with thinking about tom brady and thinking about concepts so it's just juggling a lot what i will say about the experience with under armor while at first i was like this isn't really the brand i thought i'd work at it's become the brand that 
if you think about it in a different way, they embrace different ideas. Mm-hmm. They think about both the the sports side as well as the style side. You have the ability to work on men's product and women's products. At a lot of other brands, it's so siloed mm. that you have no idea what the next category okay. is working yeah. on. At Under Armour in Portland, we have a weekly meeting where it's the PLMs from training, mm. basketball, high performance run, versatile, which is more sports style, lifestyle. We all sit together. We mm. know what each other are working on. Even the outdoor um, PLM Hans sits in those meetings just because it's important to know what each of the categories are working on. You never know if, hey, Hans, you're working on this cool outdoor boot. Can we think about a way to veneer it for a special project? Or can we do a hybrid of something that's going on in the training space? So mm. I'd say the cool thing thing about Under Armour is it's what you make it. Right. If you have a great idea, you can really, really extend your scope. Um, you can think about anything that the brand hasn't done. Mm. And it's it's different. It's not waiting for somebody to come say, this is what you should this be working you. on. Yeah. It's you being proactive and mm. thinking outside of what the brand has done because there's just so much more space and runway mm. for, for what we're doing. Right. And so now today over at Under Armour, you're, you're a director. Right. And it's very different from what your role would be as a, a PLM a product line manager or even a senior product line manager. What what can you share with the audience today about what has changed in your role as as you've elevated in the work? I think early on, it was just I want to make a lot of cool shoes. I want my friends to want the shoes I'm working on. I want to have a couple projects that nobody can get their hands on. All of that's important. Mm. It's not one thing or the other. Now it's more about utilizing the platform to have the brand think about itself, even in a different way. It's also about elevating teammates around you that may not always get certain opportunities. So I'm on our DNI board, our diversity inclusion board. So mm-hmm. it's always about once you get a seat at the table, mm. save another seat for somebody else mm. or share your seat. Um, don't look at it like, oh, I'm the only this person or this type in this meeting change that. Be part of the change for the brand. Be part of the change. Don't look at it as, well, if I invite somebody else in, that's going to be a little bit more competitive. Good. It'll push you to be better. It'll also help somebody else be the next next to have more females involved, um, more people of color involved, just different perspectives. So I'd say as a director, I've been able to um, help mentor some teammates, have and grow and foster different relationships within the brand. One of the teammates that I worked with, she started as the office manager, Mm. brought her in. She was an APLM. She just recently got promoted to be a PLM. Wow. Another team member on my side, she started as a rookie. Now she's an APLM. She's on her her way to a long-term career (laughs) and a lot of success. It's more about using the learnings that you've had and the opportunities to share that with other people. Yeah. uh, What you just said kind of sparked a a conversation that I had this week, and it really talks about how now you're in a position to be a sponsor for someone else, right? Um, And being able to see that talent, being able to say, hey, I see something in you, and then putting your reputation on the line and saying, hey, how about you come take this opportunity and let's see where you go? And just being instrumental in making sure they get there, right? And the, the diversity part is also important because we need these different perspectives to continue to innovate. For sure. When we received a headcount for a rookie position last summer, which is an intern position, mm-hmm. um, I think while we went through the interview process, it was great. My manager said, you figure out whoever you want to pick throughout the interview process. And it was a gentleman um, named Armani. He brought a very, very different perspective. He played football in college, went to Texas Tech, um, a lover of all product. By the time he was at the end of his internship, 
He had worked on a brief for some Chinese New Year ideas by working with our partner in Asia Pacific. He had started to work with Beat, one of the um, culture clubs within the organization, to think about how do we make sure for Black History Month, it's not just a commercial opportunity. How do we internally and externally become better allies? So we're trying to just give people the platform to tell their authentic stories. I don't think anyone here wants me to go talk about a story that's not authentic to me. Yeah. So everything from your internships to the teammates around you to the conversations you have, once you get the opportunity, do it right away. Don't yeah. look at it as competition. Look at it as um, igniting your fire too to get better because they will bring a different perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also making sure that they're prepared to be successful. Um, it's always a, a five or 10 minute prep um, mm. with them before we step into a big meeting that yeah. they might normally go into to just make sure, hey, here are some things to think about. I might approach it like this. Find your own way because within the, the product line management role, there's no perfect way to do anything. And you also don't want to force a style of work on somebody else just because it's yours. Mm -hmm. So we'll always say, hey, this is the way I would think about it, but find the way that you want to think about it. It's not, well, this is the way to do it, so go do it this way because you'll get stale that way and, and that other person will be like, well, that's not my style. Yeah, and they won't feel like their voice is being heard. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so you've had an, an amazing career at this point. And uh, when we think about our, our listeners and, and where they're going, uh, I think one of those most important parts of getting in the industry is getting through the interview process. Uh, and so I wanted to ask, uh, what advice uh, might you have to best prepare for it? It's going to be hard. Hmm. I don't, I know, what I'll say, pro people probably don't want to hear it. They all think that there's one trick, there's one class, there's one contact. I think you've heard from this time. I had zero contact. Mm -hmm. I started in customer service. It's all about attitude. So the things I always say, preparedness, please come prepared. Do a little bit of research on the brand. Do a little bit of research on the product that's been out there. Think about white space opportunities. Almost put yourself in the position that this is what I would brief if I came in here. And do it in a humble way, though, because you never know if someone's already briefed that behind the scenes. So you come in with those ideas. It's also passion, because if you come in with passion, you can see it. You can feel it. You know if it's authentic. And the third is patience. And with patience, I don't mean just sit around on the couch and wait for someone to call you back. <laughs> I mean more strategic patience. It may take a couple weeks to hear back. It may take a few months to get the, perf the quote unquote perfect job. With that passion, balance that with patience because it might take time. Um, if you're going to rush to one job just because it's a little bit more money than something that might be long term, that might work for you. But think about it as long term learning putting yourselves in, in, in any opportunity to learn and make those connections yourself. It's also one of the things that I think can be frustrating. Most of the people you're reaching out onto LinkedIn or Instagram, they have schedules, they mm -hmm. have personal lives. I've had people who've messaged me three or four times and I haven't gone back to them till the fifth message, but they stayed on top of it. And I was like, hey, I really apologize. I've been in Asia in the factories in the past two weeks. Try to balance the, like, keep reaching out. It may be just something that they're really, really busy. The people who are going to be persistent and patient are going to be the people who are going to see how they can get their foot in the door. That was Katie Lau. She's a director of sports style footwear at Under Armour in Portland, Oregon, and has been at the brand since 2015. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. Find out more about Katie and get access to all of our episodes on our website, at claimastories.com. And while you're there, please give us a review. If you'd like to connect, follow us on Instagram at claimastories. 
Our show this week is produced by BJ Fergozo and Adrian Anaya with music composed by VDOT of The Creative State. Thanks also to Oyelung Maui and Caitlin Williams. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to Claim Us Stories.